On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for the other Scott, we are talking to Brian Williams, the longtime face and voice of Canadian Olympics, about what's happening in Tokyo and about looking back in the Olympics and all kinds of stuff. Uh, We're going to be talking to Paul Woods. He's the author of a brand new book just about to come out about the year of the rocket. That's his new book. The year that John Candy and Bruce McNall and Wayne Gretzky bought the Argos and brought rocket Ishmael to Toronto. Fantastic story. Fantastic moment in CFL history. He's got that new book out. And we're going to talk to Henry Jacek about NDP leader Jugmeet Singh, suggesting the governor general should tell the prime minister when he shows up to dissolve parliament, call an election, tell him to pound salt. There's no reason for an election. Go home and get back to work. Well, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's what Mr. Singh would like to see happen. We're going to talk about that. Stick around. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show on this Thursday morning. Well, Thursday afternoon now. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today on National Bill Clinton Day. Oh, wait, no, no. It's National Intern Day. Sorry, I got those confused. Uh, It's Bill Clinton's favorite day, though. Uh, Hey, welcome to the show. Glad you are along with us. We got a lot to get to today. Will has been working hard. Will's been doing an amazing job this week getting guests, and uh, he has done another bang up job today. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show. It is now 107 in Hamilton. 2.07 a.m. in Tokyo time. And you know who that reminds me of? Telling all those different times. And I don't know if it was fair or not, but Brian Williams, the longtime host, the face, the voice of the Olympics for this country, for CBC, who always got teased about telling times in all the different time zones. Uh, He joins us now. Brian, was that a fair teasing? Did you used to really tell all the times in all the time zones? Hi, Scott. I certainly did, and it was the Royal Canadian Air Force, uh, the late Roger Abbott, uh, (laughs) that uh, used to make fun of it. He used to say, hello, I'm Ryan Williams, Brian Williams' twin brother, and he'd have about six watches, wristwatches on his wrist. (laughs) But the reason I did the time was, uh, let me give you an example of, for uh, in one time zone, maybe over Nagano, Japan, you know, in in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, in British Columbia, who knows what time it is. It could be evening here, middle of the night there, afternoon here, six in the morning there. It was just a point of reference. Uh, it, it put everything in context, and uh, I think it helped people understand uh, what they were seeing, where they were seeing it from, and the, uh, the distance between where they are and where the actual competition was taking place. We are uh, we are thrilled you're able to join us. Now, we're not so thrilled because, honestly, I think a lot of people would love it if you were still working on the desk and still hosting because, as I say, you're a very, you became sort of the comfortable person that we all turn to, to, to watch the Olympics. And are you able to watch the games just as a fan, as a spectator now? Or when you're there, are you, is your head always working, thinking, what would I do if I was behind the desk handling this? Scott, not thinking what would I do, but I'm always looking up, um, uh, you know, uh, when the uh, men's 100 comes, I just don't think about a 100 in Tokyo with uh, Andre de Grasse. I think uh, 1908 in London, Robert Kerr won a bronze. Canadian 1928 in Amsterdam, the great Percy Williams from Vancouver won gold in both the 100 and 200. Let me think, uh, the last time the games were in Tokyo was 1964, and the late, great Harry Jerome, if you've ever been to Stanley Park in Vancouver, there's a big statue of Harry Jerome. He was a favorite to win gold, won bronze. Ben Johnson, a lot of people don't realize, with the uh, 
the big news, the cancellation in 88 was uh, Ben uh, won a bronze in Los Angeles in 1984. And, of course, uh, the great Donovan Bailey winning gold in Atlanta 25 years ago this week. Yeah. Not only, yeah. not only did he win gold, and I'm thinking of things like this, but I'm saying, hang on. Winning gold in the 100 is impressive. I say not only did he do that, but he was a member of the 4 by 100 gold medal relay team. This is an event that had been absolutely dominated over the years, going back to 1996, the birth of the modern games in Athens, dominated by the United States. And that team of uh, Robert Esme, Bruni Cern from Montreal, Glenroy Gilbert, Donovan Bailey winning the 4 by 100 that uh, led to the great call from the late Don Whitman when, he, when they won that gold. I remember sitting in the host studio across from CNN, right where that uh, near that park where the bomb went off, uh, during the games, but I can remember Don Whitman's call when he said, you gotta love Saturday nights in Georgia. Yeah, very, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I've always felt, and I'd love to hear your thought on this, I've always felt Donovan Bailey, as much as he's a Canadian legend, I always thought he didn't get his full due for how amazing he was and what he did, because he did follow, not immediately, but he followed Ben Johnson. And I think a lot of Canadians, even though there was never a whiff of scandal around Donovan Bailey or a whiff of steroids, were a little nervous about getting too attached for fear that that shoe was going to drop again after all we went through with Ben Johnson. You're absolutely right on. I don't think he, to this day, gets the credit he deserves. Uh, Donovan, uh, I, I can tell you, when we were doing London Olympics, the last Olympics I did, 2012, Donovan was in the studio with me for track and field, and I remember, I remember. when he arrived, he wanted to know about security. And I said, come on, you guys are like downhill skiers, you know, you're the cock of the walk. And um, he said, no, no, uh, the 100 is big around the world, bigger than in North America. We went out to the stadium, and uh, you should have seen the soldiers, the guards, uh, British guards, other athletes. Uh, the American men's basketball team was coming in. They're all going, there's Donovan Bailey, Donovan Bailey, greatest runner in the world. And people were mobbing Donovan Bailey. So uh, I don't think he ever received the credit he deserves in this country. Uh, what he did uh, will stand uh, the test of time. And, you know, I even heard other people or some people say he was born in Jamaica. I say, so what? I don't care where he was born. We're a country of immigrants. And he came to this country and put this country, you know, brought glory and fame to this country on a worldwide basis. Absolutely. What you, you did both. You covered the Ben Johnson story and everybody remembers that night. I mean, and I'll ask you about that, about your memories, but what was the more compelling story in its own way, do you think? The triumph of Bailey winning those two or the tragedy of Ben Johnson and what happened to him? Well, I mean, Ben was such a shock. Uh, the 100 being, um, you know, I once said to Donovan, Donovan puts it in uh, in um, in perspective, I said, uh, you know, there are swimmers that win so many gold medals, a lot more than the runners, uh, is, uh, you know, the great swimmer from Baltimore, the American star, uh, a bigger star than, uh, say, Donovan or someone, <laughs> and yourself, and Donovan had a great answer. He said, Brian, every able-bodied man or boy in the world, regardless of what country he's from, has at some time in his life run. They haven't all been in swimming pools. And I think that uh, explains to me the two most competitive titles in the world. Not so much now. The sport has fallen from glory, but the heavyweight champion of the world and the world's fastest man. Uh, I don't say woman because uh, it is... uh, 
there is a time difference there, but uh, I give the woman credit too. But uh, I think to be the world's fastest man is one of the great titles in the world. And it speaks, Scott, it speaks to the appeal of the Olympics. And yes, I'm not speaking yep. like some wild-eyed uh, jock here. Think about it. The Summer Olympics is the biggest regularly scheduled peacetime event on Earth. More than 200 countries. Look, the winter is big, too, but there aren't as many countries. I love them both. More than 11,000 athletes. And they are true world championships, not one country saying we're the world champions of pro football or something. Um, you know, and, and then they've changed. 1996 in Athens, they were purely amateur, but now they're, they're the best. Uh, the great Usain Bolt from Jamaica, uh, when he was at his peak, uh, was making more money than most pro athletes in the world. I think uh, people around the world want to see the best, whether they're professional or amateur. I'm not saying they become world professional championships, but... Uh, but very, very close to it. And they have such wide appeal. Um, you know, the amazing stories from the athletes. Think of Maggie McNeil from nearby London, Ontario, nearsighted, couldn't even see she won gold medal. What a great story and a great performance. But we've talked about this before, Scott, and I think your listeners will get a kick out of this. People don't go to a bar, whether you're in Hamilton, Edmonton, Halifax, St. John's on a Saturday afternoon, to watch Skeleton. And I'm sure your listeners are saying to watch what? Skeleton was last competed. It came back in Vancouver, but before that, it uh, was last competed in 1948 in San Switzerland. But when John Montgomery took the skeleton, when he won the gold, uh, you know, he became a, a household word in this country. He was a true star walking through the yep. village of Whistler with a beer in his hand. So it shows you the appeal, the importance of the Olympics. And you talked about, uh, you've mentioned Vancouver. Um, it was there, the Canadian athletes, uh, several athletes told me they were no longer happy just to get the uniform. They realized they could win. They came to win. They came to do their best. And I firmly believe, and this speaks to the appeal of the Olympics, that Vancouver, and as I travel across this country, uh, changed the way Canadian athletes approach the games, and they changed the way that Canadians look at our institutions beyond sports. And Brian, you Brian, you in your closing from Vancouver, when you signed off from Vancouver, that's exactly what you talked about, as I recall, about how it had changed Canadians and their attitudes towards sports in their country. If, if I can remember the sign-off, it was something about a sea of red and a sea of pride are flowing uh, from sea to sea to sea yeah. out from Vancouver in this country. And, and it has changed the way we look at things. There's a, there's a pride in Canada. There's a pride in our institutions. Vancouver's not solely responsible for that. But yeah, think about it, Scott. Canada was the only country to host two Olympics. 1976 in Montreal, the first games I worked, Greg Joy won a silver medal for Canada. It was the Olympics of Romania's Natalie Comaneci, Alexiev, the great weightlifter, Alberta Juan from Cuba, the, 100, or the 400 and the 800. But uh, Greg Joy won a silver in Montreal. Second Olympics was Calgary. No Canadian gold. There were the uh, silvers in figure skating by uh, Brian Orser and, uh, and Liz Manley. So... You know, Vancouver was the first Olympics for a Canadian. Alex Bilodeau in freestyle skiing on that yep, Sunday yep. became the first Canadian to win a gold in Canadian soil. So the, the, the audience is just immense. Sports fans will watch the Olympics. But I used to hear from people who, you know, they'd say, I don't watch sports, hardly ever, but I'm glued to the Olympics on a daily basis.
Okay, so what is the magic? Because you've talked, we've talked about Ben Johnson. So we've had steroid scandals in the Olympics. We've had, you talked about Atlanta. We've had terrorist attacks and bombings in the Olympics. We've had boycotts in the Olympics. We've had disappointments. I mean, you talk about Greg Joy. For, for the longest time when CBC would sign off, you would have Greg Joy, the video. That was our highlight of sports, a silver medal. Why is the Olympics so appealing? Why has it persisted as something so appealing when all those things that would be bad things should have maybe taken the luster off it, but doesn't seem to have? It speaks to the, the appeal of the Olympics. Before I answer your question, though, let's not take anything away from Greg Joy's silver medal. I mean, no, no. The, the Olympics are about the athletes, not the fat cat European members of the International Olympic Committee <laughs> who stay in suites and ride in private jets, and who in the case of Salt Lake City, way back uh, uh, in Salt Lake, uh, one of the IOC members, I believe he was from the Cameroon, 2002, actually had the organizing committee uh, pay for his daughter's education. It was uh, later <laughs> found out to be a bribe. That's where Canadian yep. Dick Pound exposed it, and that's one reason he was never elected uh, the president of the IOC. I remember when the elections were held in uh, in Moscow, I was over for that, and uh, someone said Dick won't win because he cleaned up Salt Lake City, and the IOC's never forgiven him. But it's the appeal of the Olympics. Yes, there are boycotts. Yes, there are, are you know, uh, boycotts in Moscow in 1980 by, by the West, including Canada, boycotted uh, 1984 in Los Angeles uh, by the Soviet bloc, and that's why that was uh, the biggest team Canada sent, and they talk about the team in Tokyo being second in size only to Los Angeles. It's because Los Angeles uh, were boycotted games, but it, it's the appeal. It's, it's nation versus nation. It's pride. And let's let's be honest, it's about politics. I can remember saying... Uh, you know, that uh, the Olympics uh, are too political. And somebody, uh, when I was just starting out, and I never forgot this, said, what do you mean they're too political? They're political by their very nature. When you march behind flags and play national right. anthems, <laughs> that, right. folks, is political. So that that is part of the appeal. I think it's uh, it's the blend of youth, of, uh, of, is it Summer McIntosh? I hope I have the right name of the young Yeah, player. yeah, 14-year-old. Yes, uh, with veterans. Uh, you know, older people that come back to win, um, and it's—I think it's—it's it's the different uh, sports that people don't watch on a regular basis. Uh, they don't become tired of them. I mean, uh, they're never tired of the glory sports like the swimming and the uh, track and field. But you know, skeleton in Vancouver, uh, John Montgomery's gone on to become a major star in this country on television. But uh, it's all because of a great performance in skeleton. Do you believe then that with what you just said, do you believe the Olympics are Teflon? Do you believe they are unharmable? Or is this something that still has to be babied and nursed and taken care of because it could go wrong if we don't do it right? It could very easily go wrong. And when you look at the change, look at the changes that have occurred. 1996 to now, you're seeing professional athletes. Uh, look at, um, you know, games that uh, Los Angeles was the first, uh, were the first uh, games to uh, show a profit. Peter Ubroth, who I believe became commissioner mm-hmm. yep. of Major League Baseball, um, there were no, was no government financing there. Uh, Los Angeles is scheduled to host the summer games again in uh, 1928. They've got all the facilities. They've got so many basketball arenas, so many hockey arenas, so many stadiums. Uh, uh, it will not be a costly affair in Los Angeles. But, uh, no, they're, they're not 100% Teflon. People are becoming more skeptical. But, uh, you know, as the Olympics have, uh, have issues, 
So does uh, professional sport in major major league baseball, football, basketball with drug testing and so on. Uh, athletes on steroids. So uh, you know the the uh, the problems that plague the Olympics have uh, have gone beyond the games. But no, they're not Teflon. They have to watch what they're doing, and that uh, that band of privileged Europeans that dominate the International Olympic Committee better get their act together and realize the games are about the athletes. They're not about them them being the IOC, and they're not about making hundreds of millions of dollars from uh, the American television network, in this case, NBC. Uh, speaking of the athletes, one of the dominating story line, dominant storylines of the Olympics so far from Canada's perspective is we're a week almost into the Games, 10 medals for Canada, all from women. What's your theory on why our women are being so successful and our men are having such a harder time? I don't know. You know, maybe the women are getting better opportunity, better respect, uh, better training opportunities. You know, women are now being uh, appreciated as are minorities, religious, uh, colored minorities in this country. So the opportunities are better. Um, The women dominated in in Rio. Um, You know, we talk about men's hockey, but I I think of Haley Wickenheiser and some of the great performances of women's hockey. I just think there are more opportunities for women. I don't know if it's true. It's just off the top of my head. I wasn't expecting it. But since there are more opportunities, better training facilities, and I think women in general, I hope and I know, are treated with more respect, and that respect uh, extends into preparation, financing. They need more, but uh, they've had some improvement in preparing for the Olympics. And when you say better opportunities, and again, I'm putting you on the spot here, but when you say better opportunities, do you mean here in Canada and in some Western countries, or do you mean around the world? Because I think there's still, well, I know there's still a lot of countries that don't really pay any attention whatsoever and put any funding into women's sports. Well, no. Um, Adrian Arsenault, uh, uh, who uh, I believe once was a CBC correspondent in Moscow, but uh, now works the national news, was uh, working the opening ceremony with Scott Russell. And, and I think it was the United... Arab Emirates. It was early in the morning when I was watching. When they came out, she pointed out something that I don't think I'd even noticed. The flag bearers for most countries, or all countries until the United Arab Emirates came out, and I think it was the UAE, were both a man and a woman. But in this case, it was just a man. And, uh, you know, that speaks to the opportunities still uh, limited uh, for women in many parts of the world. I have to go back just to one thing, and I know it's it's probably the lowest point in the Olympics ever for Canada, but I also think, Brian, that uh, I would say that of the two most memorable moments, and people can correct me and we can argue about this over a beer or a coffee and all day long, in, in our lifetime, certainly my lifetime, the two moments that most Canadians were paying attention, Sidney Crosby's golden goal and the night that you were behind the desk and Ben Johnson's test came back, yeah, Can I don't you... want to diminish Donovan. Um, uh, no, no. probably look on Donovan as one of the great moments of triumph, along with Sidney uh, Crosby's golden goal, as uh, called by Chris Cuthbert. And uh, Ben was not a moment of triumph. But, but I can remember being awakened in, in the middle of the night over there and, uh, in Seoul and, uh, and said, get to the studio. Uh, ben Johnson tested positive. And I thought, don't tell me the crew's been drinking again. What's going on here? <laughs> and uh, No, I didn't think that. But uh, I laugh when I think back, and I went in and had to announce to the world. We didn't uh, play today, day 10, da-da-da-da-da, the big voice announcing all the yes. sports. I came on, I said, good morning from Seoul. There has been a positive drug test. It involved sprinter Ben Johnson. And, um, you know, we went on and documented uh, 
that he was on his way home and what happened, and it was, I believe, Stanisolo, uh, if, uh, if my memory is correct, but uh, that was not a moment of triumph. And I can tell you, when I got off the air, uh, the International Broadcast Center, which was uh, our studio, was underground in Seoul. There were television cameras from all over the world that wanted to talk to me about Canada's uh, moment and, and what happened. And as it turns out, uh, Ben, of course, wasn't the only one. Uh, ben was the one that got caught. But, uh, you know, it, it was very sad in so many ways. Sad for It ben. was. But, Brian, I can't believe, the, honestly, I can't believe that there was that, that almost every Canadian at some point in that 10 or 12 hours you were on was not tuned in at some point. It was, it was horrible. And it was painful for Canadians, but it was the most compelling television ever from the Olympics. Well, I mean, we did it without, you know, no script, I had, uh, no auto cue. Uh, we were flying by the seat of our pants. And I can remember um, um, when Ben won, this is how big it was. The producer, yep. and I think it was Bob Moyer or Arthur Smith, uh, the late Bob Moyer or Arthur, who's in Los Angeles now. I can, I can remember them saying to me, Brian, the prime minister's on the line. And I thought, oh, knock it off, guys. So I picked up the phone and I hear... Hello, Brian. Brian Bowen. <laughs> and, uh, and the Prime Minister said he and Mila jumped so high that I think they knocked the dog off the, uh, off the bed. And we the all did. The race was run, I think, at 1.30 in the afternoon. There's time again, and this is perspective. The race went something like 1.30 in the afternoon on a Saturday. It went at 11.30 Eastern Time, Hamilton Time, Toronto Time, Eastern Time on a Friday night. And, uh, and, you know, things changed rapidly until the Monday when he was uh, announced as, uh, as, a, as a positive drug test. And uh, I remember that night. 100, too, the, the, the glamour event of the games and uh, arguably the number one attraction in the Summer Olympics. I remember that night vividly. I remember where I was. In fact, my house at that time where I lived was uh, about five blocks away from your house in North York at that time. Right. And uh, But you were a little distance away from that point at that night in Seoul. Uh, Brian, we got to run, but um, y- you've done a million things in television, a million things. You've, been, you've done everything in television, but I think a lot of people know you as the Olympic guy, first and foremost. Is that okay with you as a legacy? Yeah, it's fine. I mean, I did uh, worked with Ken Reed in skiing, Jackie Stewart in play-by-play of Formula One, Bobby Unser Formula One, horse racing, tennis. God, I, I, I CFL. How many Grey Cups? Maybe forty Grey Cups. But uh, no, I'm proud that they remember that. And I was just part of uh, of great teams. Worked with great people at both CBC and CTV. It is, uh, it is fantastic to catch up with you. My email has been filling up with comments from people saying, great to hear from Brian. Why isn't he on the air? Well, we'll maybe we'll forward these to CBC for next time. But uh, Brian Williams, listen, we love catching up with you. Thanks so much for taking time today. Scott, my pleasure. Always great to be on 900 CHML, the station of Lloyd Defoe, Paul Hanover, Purse Allen, Norm Marshall, Bill Stirrup. Uh, just uh, really enjoyed this and uh, really enjoy the Olympics. Thank you very much. Brian Williams, the face and voice of Canadian Olympics for decades. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So, you know, it's always dangerous in this market to, um, to talk about the Toronto Argonauts and to talk about them in terms that are not insulting, <laughs> that may be a, a positive way. Uh, I'm sure there are some people out there who have a Ticat logo tattooed on their body right now who have plugged their ears and are going, la, 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 not listening, not listening. You're going to say something nice about the Argos, la, la, la. No, well, it, it's okay. It's it's from the past. So j- don't worry. We're not going to say anything nice about the current Argos, I don't think, just to make everyone feel a little bit happier. 
but there is a story that is um that is about the Toronto Argonauts from some time ago that really is worth revisiting and really is worth retelling. And so it's fantastic that um that this is happening. That a new book is coming out called The Year of the Rocket, which is the story of the year of John Candy and Wayne Gretzky and Bruce McNall and Rocket Ishmael, Rahib Ishmael, who joined the team, snatched away from the NFL from under their nose. And boy, it I don't I don't know that I don't know that, that was the last truly great year for the CFL. I'm not talking about the level of play. I mean, as far as a just as people talking about it and everything else, but it's, it's, it's in the mix for that one. Paul Woods is the guy who is the author of this book. He joins us now. How are you today, Paul? Great, Scott. Nice to be here. I guess I've stepped into the tiger's den. Have I? Well, as I say, normally if we're going to talk Argos and not say nasty things about them, people might grit their teeth and, uh, and be filled with spite. But here's the thing. I really believe that even among Ticats fans, this period in the CFL's history, this moment, uh, in retrospect anyway, is, is remembered pretty fondly by a lot of people, even all around the country. Oh, it is, absolutely. It was, it was a fascinating time. You, I think it really was, in some ways, maybe the, the last time that uh, football was a really major part of Canadian culture. And you know, it's still really huge in Hamilton. It's still huge in a lot of parts of the, the country, but it's not huge right across the country the way it was back then. I, I, know that, I know that even though the Tiger Cats didn't do great in 1991 and the Argos obviously won the Grey Cup, I think a lot of Tiger Cat fans are going to find the story just as fascinating as Argo fans will. Uh, well, anyone who's a fan of the CFL will, guaranteed. Um, and, and again, I think anyone who's a fan of Hollywood or, you know, with, with John Candy or Wayne Gretzky or celebrity or um, even the idea of snatching someone out from underneath the NFL, who doesn't like the idea of that even today? Uh, but just before we get into all that, let's just set the table here for the four people who don't really remember. What was the state of the league when John Candy, Bruce McDowell, and Wayne Gretzky decided to buy their way in and buy the Argos? Uh, the league was in pretty rough shape. You know, in 1987, the Alouettes had folded. Uh, actually, to go back even a little bit before that, in, 80, in 82, the Alouettes were such a disaster that they became the Concords, and then they struggled along, returned as the Alouettes, and then, and then folded. In 85, the Stampeders almost went out of business. Uh, the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, who are now like the, the cash-generating machine of Canadian football, had to hold telethons to, uh, to, to stay alive year to year. Tiger Cats uh, were, were owned by David Braley, but he was looking for somebody to take the team off his hands because they were putting 11,000 fans into Iverwind Stadium. There was a lot of turmoil in the Canadian Football League, and all of a sudden, here comes Hollywood. Here comes Wayne Gretzky, John Candy, and Bruce McNall, two of the the most famous, most popular Canadians ever, and this guy, Bruce McNall, who at the time we all thought was a millionaire with a Midas touch, uh, and Hollywood <laughs> comes with them. It was unbelievable. Why did they buy the team? I mean, I know John Candy was a fan. I'm not sure Wayne Gretzky was a huge fan, but he was certainly a good friend and partner with Bruce McNall. Why did they buy the team? Well, I mean, there's, there's funny, there are many stories about how it came about, and I recount some of them in the book, but it seems pretty clear that McNall thought, he thought it was potentially a chance to sort of do for Canadian football and the Argos what he had done to, for hockey in Los Angeles when he brought Gretzky down there in 88. He, 
it, the, the Kings had been around since 1967, but had never been a major factor in that gigantic Los Angeles market or really anywhere. Uh, and then Gretzky goes in 88, and suddenly everybody wants a ticket to the fabulous forum to see the great one. Uh, so I think McNall saw this as a similar opportunity. He also had an ulterior motive. He, he was interested in getting an NFL franchise for Toronto. He admitted that to me. It's in the book. Um, but it wasn't the only thing driving it. I think he also saw this as an undervalued property that could be revitalized, particularly with the star power of John and Wayne, and then eventually the Rocket. One of my favorite stories that I've heard a number of times from back in that era um, was how crazy John Candy went promoting this when that team was about to get going that, I mean, there are stories of John Candy literally going from radio station to radio station to radio station to TV station, just anyone who was willing to have him on and talk, John Candy was willing to go and pump the Argos. Oh, that's absolutely true. He he threw himself completely heart and soul into that for that first year. He he put his movie career on hold, and he was he was one of the biggest movie stars in the world at the time. He was getting yeah. paid a lot. He was in Uncle Buck. He was in planes, trains, and automobiles. Those are huge motion pictures, and he would make more than a million dollars per picture, which is a you know a lot of money now, but it was really a lot of money thirty years ago. And he just put that all on hold, and he went on every road trip with the Argos all year long. And as you say, Scott, he would go to every single radio station in town the day before the game, starting at 5 in the morning. He's on every, every talk show, every radio station saying, buy tickets, buy tickets. If everybody comes to the game tomorrow night, we're going to get the blackout lifted. And it was, he was just a massive presence. He was the head of the league's expansion committee, and he actually was doing it. It wasn't a figurehead title. He was, he was working to, find, to try to get the league expanding. John Candy loved the Argos. He grew up as, a, as, a, as an Argo fan as a kid. He dreamt of playing for the team. So this was kind of like a dream come, come true for him. And, man, was he all in. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of a, you know, a, a modern example of this for anyone who's under the age that doesn't really remember what a big deal John Candy was. And, you know, we can't use the NFL because that's, that's easy. But, I mean, I guess it would be a sort of equivalent if, if Brad Pitt or Tom Hanks or someone now decided they were going to buy a CFL team and just start pumping it like crazy. It, it, it just it sounds insane today that that would happen, but that's what it was. Yeah, and, and not only did you have John Candy, but you had the greatest hockey player of all time who grew up not far down the road in Brantford and was an Argo fan as a kid. He, he told me about a really clear memory of going to an Argo game when he was billeting at a house in Oakville and seeing Granny Liggins playing defensive tackle for the Argos. Hmm. Um, you know, those two guys were massive stars, and all of a sudden they're bringing themselves and they're bringing Hollywood to the CFL, and we've just never seen anything like it, and we probably never will again. And just before we get to the rocket part, I, I do recall the very for the opening night at Skydome when they had the uh, the Blues Brothers review was there, and they brought up all these stars from Hollywood. I mean, it was like we had never seen anything like this in the CFL before. Even in the glory days of the CFL, we'd never seen something like this before. That's that's absolutely right. I described that night as possibly the, 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 the wildest, greatest one-night event in Toronto sports history. I mean, the, <laughs> with, with, with Dan Aykroyd there and, and Candy yep. and Jim Belushi dancing on the stage with Mario Hemingway. Uh, you know, when Candy walked around the stadium that night, the love that poured out of those 41,000 people for that guy was unbelievable. I was, I was fortunate enough to be at the game with my kids, and man, I had shivers going up my spine for much of the night. So you're saying it was a wilder night than the opening of the Sky Dome itself with Alan Thicke and Andrea Martin and the people on skate on roller skates in the rain? Yeah, that was pretty funny too. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they, they, they doing dance, dancing in the rain with the roof open and the, the 
place getting flooded. That's true. But I, I mean, I think the, this was a spectacle because it also meant something, right? It was a game that yes, mattered. Yes. And, uh, and it was also the debut of the Rocket. He hadn't played in the previous week in Ottawa. So it was the first time anybody got to see him play in Canada. And we saw quite a spectacle with that as well. Okay, so let's go to the Rocket, because really that's what the book's, the title is, that's what sort of it's built around. Where Do we know where the idea came from among them to say, hey, you know what, let's go get Rocket Ishmael, because it's just, again, we, we keep using the word insane, it's an insane idea for them to come up with this. Well, what what happened was, um, when Bruce McNall, he was the, the majority owner, of course, he, he met with the executives and he told them, think big. And one of his executives was a guy who's in your, your listening audience, maybe he's listening today, Mike McCarthy, lives in Stony Creek. Yeah. He was the general manager of the Argos. And he had been, prior to the sale, uh, to the purchase of the team, he, as, as general managers would do, watched all the bowl games on New Year's Day, and he saw the Rocket have almost break open the Orange Bowl. He, got a, he had an incredibly dramatic touchdown in the last minute that unfortunately was called back by a penalty or it would have won Notre Dame the game and possibly the national championship. And he thought to himself, man, I, that's the guy we need. We, can you imagine adding him to our offense, which already includes Matt Dunnigan, Daryl K. Smith, Pinball Clemens, and so when McNall comes along a couple of months later and says, Mike, think big, he's thinking big. He's thinking the Rocket. What's, what's the harm of putting him on our negotiation list? He mentions it to Roy Malacker, who was a team executive for the Kings and was also doing some work for the Argos. Roy goes to McNall and says, we're thinking of Rocket Ismail, and McNall's eyes lit up, and it went from there. You see, that story makes sense. I, I was picturing four guys, Gretzky and McNall and Candy sitting around drinking five bottles of wine and one of them as a lark goes, hey, let's get the rocket. You, your, your story makes a lot more sense. Well, lot I'll more tell sense. you, some of, some of the sitting around and drinking five bottles of wine did <laughs> take place. In fact, I was told that the, the, the night before the news conference to announce them buying the team, there was a long session in a restaurant in downtown Toronto where there was a lot of alcohol consumed <laughs> and Wayne in particular looked a little rough the next morning at the news conference. Do you believe that even when they came up with the idea and told McCarthy and said, think big, and they came up with the name and they even set their minds that they were going to go for this, do you really think they believe they could pull this off? I don't think they did. I mean, I, you know, McNall was throwing dollar figures around like $6 million over two years, which wouldn't have done it compared to what, what NFL first overall picks were getting at the time. But what happened was it got them at least into the discussion stage with, with Rockets. With, it was called Team Rocket. He had a team of financial and business advisors, and Team Rocket was pretty skeptical, but they heard the, the $6 million. They said, well, well we got to listen. And then they were lucky in a way. They, you know, Rocket was, was also talking to the New England Patriots, who owned the first pick in the NFL draft. And he was at a meeting with some Patriots executives, and one of them made a remark that Rocket construed as racist. And he immediately got turned off. And all of a sudden it became, hey, maybe this could happen. And then McNall uh, flew him out to, uh, first to Las Vegas, then to, then to Los Angeles, where McNall and Matt Dunnigan took him around town. They went to Rodeo Drive, bought all kinds of clothes and stuff. And it started to seem real. And when Rocket heard John Candy was involved, his eyes lit up. Was was the NFL, I mean, the NFL was obviously looking at him, but do you think the NFL was aware of what was going on in the shadows with the CFL, or were they not even paying attention to that? Well, they, I mean, I don't think they took it seriously as a threat. There's a, there's a great story in the book. You, you may remember the name Bobby Ackles. He was the longtime yes, general yes. manager Lions. of the D.C. Lions, and he had gone down to work for the Dallas Cowboys. And while he was with the Lions... 
he, uh, he had on his coaching staff, Adam Rita, who by 1991 was the Argos head coach. So Ackles hears these rumors about Rocket going to the Argos. He calls up his friend Adam Rita and says, come on, what? Do you, yeah, this is hilarious. What are you going to pay him? And Rita said, very seriously says to him, I'm not involved in the financials, but you better take this seriously. These guys have enough hair up their butt that they're going to make this happen. And sure enough, they did. I know you said that, that Rocket was intrigued and his eyes opened when he heard about John Candy, but even then, do you think that he was taking, when, let me put it a different way, when did he really begin to take seriously the idea? Because it's not just the money, there is for an American football player who is in the stat, like the state, the status that he had, there is a status in going to the NFL and all your friends watch the NFL and everybody who knows you knows the NFL when do you think he started to really start to think seriously that he might come to Canada? Well, I think it was when the Argos got, they, they, they wised up to that exact fact. They realized, like, if he comes to Canada, he's foregoing a lot of exposure and, and marketing possibilities. And Rocket was a great-looking guy with a fantastic nickname. He had a huge reputation for, from being a star at Notre Dame. He's going to surrender all that and come to a, a much smaller market in Canada. So they made a deal with him that they were going to pay him an outlandish amount of money, and they were going to basically compensate him, really overcompensate him for the fact that he wouldn't be able to get Pepsi ads down in the U.S. by paying him more money than any football player in the history of the planet had ever been paid. He got $4.5 million over each, each year over a four-year contract. It ended up being two, but it was a four-year deal. $4.5 million. Joe Montana was making less than that, and Joe Montana was the star for the Super Bowl champion 49ers. Um, when, when the money got to that point, and also Rocket came up for a visit, and he, and he felt, he said this very often, that he felt for the first time in his life people were not judging him based on the color of his skin. Uh, Canada being not quite, uh, you know, as, as maybe bigoted as parts of the United States are. And so he had that all up, and, uh, and it's a great deal financially, and, he, and all his money was up front. He, was, he was basically paid the whole $4.5 million before mm. the season started. Paul, I'm trying to recall, and I can't. What was the reaction in Toronto and across Canada when the announcement was made? Because I, I, if my recollection is correct, maybe we heard some rumblings about this right before, but essentially for a lot of people, this was a shock. And all of a sudden, here's the rocket. What was the response? Well, it was it was shock. I mean, there was there were rumors flying around. It was it was reported for about I think even three or four weeks before it actually went down. And you know, at first it was like very brief little blurbs in the newspaper that nobody really took very seriously. Uh, and, and then suddenly, you know, the whispers got a little bit louder. And uh, the the McNall, you know, brilliant uh, Hollywood creative thinker, they signed the deal on a Saturday night. Uh, while his L.A. Kings were in the playoffs against the Edmonton Oilers, and it was the night before the NFL draft. And so ESPN opens its coverage on Sunday morning with the NFL draft, and the biggest name is already off the board. Rocket's gone. Those guys on ESPN look pretty bummed out. And it was funny, you know, the, the, the reaction in Canada was ranged from, are you kidding me, this is crazy, how the hell is it gonna, are we going to afford this, this is going to ruin the league, to... Isn't it nice to, to, be, to be laughing in the face of the NFL? And down there, some of them were saying, a New York Times columnist said, well, he's now, he's now, might as well have gone to the moon because we're never going to see him again. Yeah. Well, and, and look, the, the Toronto Argonauts, um, in their glory days especially, were not exactly beloved around the rest of the country. People love to hate the Toronto Argonauts. And this, now you do this. And even though, as I said off the top, it's kind of a warm, fun memory now, 
when they would go in, they were a great road draw that year, obviously, maybe the best ever. But man, it was not like people were loving them. People wanted to go and whip beer cans at Rocket because it was the Argos. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I heard I heard stories about uh, fans and some of them in Hamilton whipping batteries and stuff like that. But you know, it was funny. I, I, I was at a couple of the road games. I was at their game, the, the opening game in Ottawa, and I was at the game in Edmonton. And you're right that everybody hated the fat cat, rich Argonauts. But then John Candy would arrive on the field, and the whole place would go crazy. They were so happy, yeah, right? Yeah. It was, uh, so it was this real interesting dichotomy. And uh, they, they were a giant draw. They, when they went to Regina, the day before the game, when the Argos did a walkthrough, 500 people showed up at Taylor Field to watch the Argos do their walkthrough. I, you know, listen, we only have a few seconds left here, and I don't want to be negative about the CFL. We're all thrilled that they're coming back next week, that the season starts and the training camps are on. But it, clearly the momentum from that moment, if, if it was supposed to be a launching pad to become the CFL of old again that mattered to everybody, clearly that momentum didn't click. It didn't grab the traction that maybe they would have hoped. Was that essentially impossible to do, though? Unless you're going to start throwing around $5 million contracts for everyone. That, it, it had to only be a blip. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Brian Cooper was the, was the team's the chief operating officer back then, and he was also a longtime friend of Gretzky, who was asked by Gretzky, what do you think about this idea of buying the Argonauts? And Cooper said, I don't, I don't recommend it. I did, did, they're just not a big deal in this marketplace, and I think it's going to take years to build it up. And unfortunately, what he didn't know at the time, and what none of us knew at the time, was that McNall's whole financial empire was built on fraud, and there wasn't going to be the kind of money that was needed to do it. They, all, you know, they started raising ticket prices in year two, and people bled away. They'd had the, the, the magic ride. They'd won the Grey Cup in 91. It was a fantastic season. Magic, everything was great. And then the ticket prices went up, and now you know they can move on to other stuff. And the Blue Jays were getting really good at the time. Don't forget, they won the World Series in 92 and 93. So the Argos kind of had their moment, and then it turned over to baseball, and McNall ended up in prison. Yeah, talk about the glory days. Eh? The Rocket the one year, the Jays the World Series, the Leafs started one of those years 10-0 and and went to the semifinals a couple times. I mean, boy, it was, uh, it was a good time to be a sports fan in Southern Ontario. Uh, just before we go, I, I can't recall... And I may be wrong on this one. In fact, I'm quite sure I probably am. But I can't recall this, the Rocket doing anything with the CFL or being anywhere in Toronto almost since the day he left. Is, am I right? Like, did that sort of end and then that was it and that there's no connection anymore? Pretty much. He came back for a reunion in 2011, a 20-year reunion of the team. Uh, and he came back in 2016 for the first game at BMO. Uh, but pretty much he's been gone other, other than that. Um, I think, he, I think he, he, he looks back on it with, with fond memories about the on-field stuff and his teammates, but I don't think he looks back on it with fond memories about the off-field stuff. They wanted him to be the Wayne Gretzky of Canadian football, and that was not his personality. Uh, he wasn't ready for it. He was a shy kid. Uh, so he was under a hell of a lot of pressure to earn that money, and he was ready to go after a year or two. And was he spent ten years in the NFL? He was never the star he was up here, but he, he carved out a good career for himself. Um, he didn't talk to me for the book. I spent fourteen months trying to get him to talk to me, and in the end, he finally said through an intermediary, "I'm really gr- glad you're doing the book, and I'd really like you to focus on all my great teammates," which was very similar to the kinds of things he said back then. Fascinating stuff. When does the book come out? Year of the Rocket. When is it available? 
It'll be available uh, in stores on September 1st. Uh, it's available for pre-order now through Amazon and all the other online places. And uh, the publisher, Sutherland House, uh, will be putting it up for sale in the next few days with a very nice discount for people that want to buy it early. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a great story. I mean, obviously I'm biased. I wrote it. But there's so much that happened that year. We haven't even talked about Matt Dunnigan playing the Grey Cup with a yes. broken collarbone or the beer can that came out of the stands and almost beamed the rocket as he scored the touchdown. It's all in there. It's an unbelievable confluence of sports, entertainment, popular culture, money, celebrity. It's got everything. Uh, Paul Woods, uh, The Year of the Rocket is the name of the book. And I know not, it's going to be great when we read it, not only because you wrote it, but because my first and best journalism professor was your editor, Don Gibbs. So I know this book is going to be the greatest sports book ever written. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal NDP, took a very, very, very clever, very creative, very interesting position yesterday with the governor general, the newly sworn in governor general of this country. And he argued that when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau goes to Rideau Hall to the governor general to say, I would like to dissolve parliament so that we can have an election, Jagmeet Singh says the governor general should take him to go pound salt. You, sh- you can't have an election. Go back to work. He says the law, here's what Jagmeet Singh says. The law allows for an early election because we know we have mandated times for elections, but an, uh, the law allows for an early election if the government has lost the confidence of the House. But the Trudeau government has won every confidence vote that they faced, including the speech from the throne and the government. So what's the reason for an election? Here's what Jugmeet Singh had to say on our sister station in Toronto, 640 uh, Global Radio with Greg Brady this morning. What would be the reason for an election right now? Normally you call an election when you've lost the confidence of the House, but you know, we've been able to actually get things done. So how can the prime minister say that when we've been able to pass confidence motion? So that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I thought really the prime minister just wants power and that's not a good reason to plunge the country into an election. Right? When you look at it, normally you've got to show that there's been a loss of confidence or some reason that you're co-holding election. If nothing else, it really exposes that the only reason that the prime minister is calling this election is for the sake of power, which shouldn't be enough reason to have an election. The governor general does have the power to make that determination. And more importantly, we're hoping that this puts pressure on the prime minister to say, listen, stop your pursuit of power and instead focus on helping people. Let's get the things done that we need to do. Henry Jacek is a professor of political science at McMaster University. He's a familiar voice on this station. We love having him on here. Henry, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate your time. Okay, my pleasure, Scott. So does Jugmeet Singh have a point even in theory? Well, he has an interesting point that I think a lot of people would see as as being a good point, and I think it, uh, you know, it's 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 a very canny thing to do. But I think there's there's two two reasons why it's probably not going to happen. Uh, is number one, uh, when we first got the uh, six dates at the federal election, Stephen Harper, that was under when he was prime minister. And he, and he, quite frankly, uh, after he put that into play, he then uh, went against it and called an early election that he had under, with the minority government. And in a sense, what he did is he set a, a precedent, which I think a lot of you know, people, legal and constitutional people will look at and say, well, there's the precedent right there that uh, the, date, the fixed date of the election probably has more to do with 
not going more than four years without an election than it is for saying you've got to go four years. So that so I think that's that's the first thing. And there's and there's this long parliamentary tradition that goes way way back in our history and the British history as well. That uh, the the when the prime minister wants an election, as long as he's been in office for approximately three months, uh, the governor general is probably going to let him have uh, his election or her election. And uh, that that that's a that's a very big you know constitutional understanding in both countries so i don't think i don't think that i mean the governor general has her advisor she probably has two to three of the best constitutional lawyers in the country she generally keeps it a secret who they are but we generally know that they're really going to be outstanding the top of the top of the class of constitutional lawyers and they will tell her that when the prime minister comes and says he wants an election what she will do is say yes sir will we will have an election uh, you mentioned precedent. And, and again, I, look, I've not heard a single person disagree with you and say, oh, yeah, I think she's really going to stand up to him and tell him to go away. I, I've heard nobody suggest that. But on the issue of precedent, because of her unique position as the Queen's representative, is she subject to precedent? Does she have to follow the precedent even though it's there? Well, I mean, I think she could tell her constitutional advisors, I'm, I'm the governor general and I'm calling the shot here. But what she will have to do is, I mean, the government will, you know, they will, they will start attacking her. And they will, I mean, even though they don't want to, and we could easily get into a constitutional crisis. We don't want to see a fight between a, a governor general and, and the prime minister. Uh, we had one in the 1920s, and that... Uh, that was a very bitter fight, and at the end of the day, the, the prime minister won out, and it did damage for a while the office of governor general. And I think all successors uh, said, listen, I don't want to do this. And, and I, I can remember, let me give you a local antidote. Uh, antidote. When uh, Lincoln Alexander was lieutenant governor of, of the province of Ontario, so he would have been in a place where he has to approve uh, an election when a premier came, is what he told me, and he told other people this too as well. He said the first thing he did after he was made lieutenant governor is he prayed to God that there would never be a, uh, a minority <laughs> election. So he always wanted to have a premier who had a majority. The last thing he wanted to do was have to make that decision. All right, so for fun, and again, uh, understanding that the likelihood of this happening is probably the same as me growing an afro by the end of the show today. But the, right. the, for fun... <laughs> What would happen if the governor general did say to him, I won't give you your election? What then happens? Do we know what would even happen if she would say that to the government? Well, she could possibly sustain that position for a while. But, you know, although she's, you know, represents the queen, but she also keeps a, a good lookout on public opinion. And I think a person in that office, and like many people in offices, they look at the, you know, what, how do people think they're doing their job? And I do not think, especially her, especially someone who's just been appointed, I don't want people to think that I'm being uppity and not doing the job that I'm supposed to do. And uh, I, I, I just don't, I just can't imagine that, uh, that a governor, that this governor general uh, or or any modern governor general at this point would say no to the prime minister. I'd be shocked. But she could call it, but she's going to get. She would get a lot of criticism. I mean, our beloved Hamilton Spectator, I'm sure, would have on the editorial page saying she made a big mistake uh, constitutionally. Even though the people probably would say we wish the prime minister hadn't asked for it, 
But once he asks for it, really, he should get his way on that. So that's, uh, but she can't, she, you know, she can do it again, do it. But I mean, if we go back to the 1920s, the, the controversy we had between the prime minister and the governor general, uh, it's, it's, it's really becomes a very, very brutal public opinion war. You know, the one thing that's so ironic about this is, uh, I guess, theoretically, if she has the power, if she declined the opportunity and the prime minister had asked to relinquish power, which is basically what he's doing when he dissolves parliament, by declining him, you're forcing him to remain in power. Theoretically, you could keep one party in power forever under our law. I'm sure there's a loophole there. And I know we have laws that require elections every five years. But I guess, theoretically, if she declined to accept the dis- dissolution of parliament, you could keep one party in power. Yeah, I, uh, well, I mean, at least for a couple of years, but I think public opinion becomes very important there. I mean, if they, if the prime minister, I mean, if we have a prime minister who wants to go beyond now this, this for this, uh, fixed date that's, that's out there, uh, by that le- new legislation, I think again, now then public opinion would change, it would go against the prime minister. Yes. So I, I really think in this country, on our basic constitutional issues, at the end of the day, the people call the shots on, on what these people have to do inter- constitutionally. It, I, th- I just think our, our con- the people's grasp of the Constitution and what's right and proper, I think they, they, will, they will basically lead the Prime Minister and the, and the Governor General to do what, they want, what the people really want them to do. And, uh, I, and I, think, I think both the Prime Minister and the Governor General, whoever they may be, I think recognize that they, you know, they, that this, is, this is a really dangerous thing to do in terms of alienating the public. For sure, for sure. Now, let's, let's talk about what the people want, because there's a new Nanos poll that came out this week that shows, like, literally almost no enthusiasm for a fall or late summer election. 26% of Canadians say they're happy about the idea about a summer election. Uh, the vast majority don't want this. Um is that a problem if you are the government or is that just what you would expect because we're in the middle of summer and nobody wants to think about politics we're still wanting to think about going to the cottage and enjoying the weather outside this happens a lot well, i mean this happened to harper and uh you know when this this has ha- happens a lot when you when when before if the government hasn't gone a full t- you know a full 4 years you will often have people saying we don't need an election and uh, I don't want an election, and, and especially in this situation, we're, when we're looking at a fall election, and here we are in, the, in, uh, in July, at the end of the July, but we're, you know, people, people are saying, no, 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 I don't want to be bothered with this. This is, go and do your work. Don't bother me. And I don't want people coming around my door. I don't want people calling me up. But what, and, that, and so this is not uncommon, and I think it's going to happen here. And when, but when the election is called, it takes about 24 hours before people forget about it, and and they now are engaged in the decision that the people have to make: who are you going to elect as your representative in your constituency? And that's what people focus on. So they will quickly forget about this, and they generally, unless they are convinced that the government is doing calling the election because of of a very clear crass way to to uh, hold on to power and it and 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 i don't think we have it in this case uh we did have it once provincially uh david peterson who 
could see that he was going that there were, he was three years in power and could see that he was going to have a, a recession. All the economists were saying that the recession a recession was coming in the next year, and that was all written about in the press. And the people heard that and they accepted that. And when he called the election, guess what? They did the unthinkable. They elected uh, the new Democratic mm. Party for the first time and Bob Ray to be the uh, government of Ontario. But right now, I don't get a sense that people think that, you know, if Trudeau calls an election, that he's doing something really, really opportunistic here. Uh, you know, I know Jagmeet Singh said that he wants to hold, that, that uh, Trudeau wants to hold on to power. But I don't think people grasp that as a, as, as a particularly strong uh, argument at this time. Uh, I mean, if we were... Going to fa- if we were about to face the terrible recession the way Peterson did, and suddenly, you know, everybody was talking about that as a reason why the, the prime minister was rushing to the polls, then that might hurt him. But but people don't see that because I think actually people think that the economy is actually going to pick up over the next year mm. or two. Henry, we have just a minute here, so just one more thing on this one. One of the, the one of the main points that the Liberals have sort of positioned this is, as for an election is they've pointed to the fact that they say the Conservatives are being obstructionist and are trying to get in the way of the business of the House of Commons. Isn't that kind of the role of the opposition to challenge laws that it doesn't think are good and to use whatever methods it has? I mean, I, I, I can't believe that this would not be the same no matter who was the government and who was the opposition. You're absolutely correct. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a weak argument. Uh, it's a weak argument by the liberals. At, but as I said, the, the governor general will take, say, listen, if you want an election after two years and you're in a minority government, precedent tells me I got to let you have it. But you're right. It's a weak argument. Of course, the, that's the role of the opposition. We uh, want vigorous debate in commons, don't we? Yeah, of course. Respectful, but vigorous. Oh, absolutely. We want vigorous debate. I mean, the, the times we have bad legislation oftentimes is when one party has far much, too much power in, in, in the legislative body, in the House of Commons, or in a provincial legislature. No, we want to have, we want to have the, uh, the, uh, the, the, government, uh, the opposition party to have at least half the strength in a legislative body. That, Political scientists have studied this, and they say, but if you got half the strength or more of the of the government in the in the uh, opposition party, then that forces the government to be very careful and not to make mistakes about their legislation. Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster, we always love having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Okay, enjoyed it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.